Welcome to Dino Insights in our multi-part series on test cell design and construction. In today's episode, Mike and Chris focus on the various cooling requirements. Today's podcast will be talking about cooling requirements in the design of a test cell. Four of the main topics we'll be talking about will be what do you actually need to cool within the test cell? Second will be what are the main components that make up the system? Three, we'll dial in on talking about the individual systems or subsystems, as they say, and some of the main components within that. And then last but not least, we'll wrap it up with what do you, how do you determine the size? What's the cost associated with it? All the things you need to know or all the things you need to find out. Okay, thanks, Mike. I guess as we look at the test cell, we'll be looking into two main areas, that of engine cooling and the, the dyno cooling, and that will apply whether it's a water break, an AC dyno, or an eddy current machine. Good point. In addition, we'd like to talk about the, the smaller subsystems of, of fuel cooling, air cooling in the test cell, and exhaust cooling. But if we start off with uh, looking at the layout for a typical system, do you want to run through that? Yeah, sure. Now, I think that it goes without saying, but we'll say it anyways, that the main components we'll be talking about cooling are engine and dyno that apply to most users. As Chris talked about earlier, is that you have your fuel, air, and exhaust, but those are more ancillary, and those are not always used. So we'll focus our attention on the larger of the five that were mentioned. So let's start off with the evaporative cooling system. And now, I call it an evap cooling system, and I won't go into the details behind what it is, but basically, if there's an analogy that we can compare to as we go through this, the cooling system is similar in theory and operation to an automobile cooling system. So let me give you an example. So if you look at a cooling system in a test cell, and this is the main system that provides a, a water or a cooling solution to individual components within the test cell, it has a cooling tower or an evaporative cooling tower, as they say. And that is somewhat similar to a radiator in a car or a truck. And what that does is it takes fluid through it. There's a fan attached to it in a car, and there would be a fan on a, on a cooling tower as well. And it's actually going to draw air through it to cool the fluid flowing through the cores of the radiator. So that's effectively providing the overall coolant, the overall chilling method for all the liquids. But it doesn't all run in one system, does it? We'll, we start looking at subsystems that feed different areas? Yeah, but to further that discussion, you're absolutely correct, Chris, to further that discussion, so I talked about one component of a system. You have your cooling tower, but you also have all the plumbing associated with it. You also have pumps, and the pumps serve the purpose of moving the fluid to the areas in which it's required in the cooling system, and then you have the controls aspect to it. So those are at a very high level, those components that make up a cooling system. And in a car, you've got, as I spoke about earlier, you have the radiator with the fan blowing through it or pulling through it. You also have a thermostat, which controls how cold or hot the fluid is. No different than the controls in a test cell, except they're more, they're more technologically advanced to have tighter control. And then the pumps. On an engine, it's a water pump on an engine. In a test cell environment, it's a electric motor with a physical pump on a stand located somewhere moving the fluid through it. So most likely, this cooling system would feed through the dyno as the biggest consumer of water for a water break, for example. That would be pushing the water through the dyno, keeping it at the right temperature. But the engine would cool through 
a separate subsystem using the pumps and the plumbing you discussed. So we'd have what a, a different heat exchanger, which would then look after the cooling requirements for the test engine. Great segue into topic number three, which is the individual systems that the main cooling system would feed it. So to do that, and we'll go with your example, Chris, let's just, let's use an engine, for example. So if we're running an engine in a test cell, it has a different requirement than a dyno would have in regards to cooling. So what we're going to do on the engine is we're going to add a heat exchanger. Now, if I could describe a little bit of heat exchanger, at least I'll try to describe it. There's two main style of heat exchangers in the industry. One's a plate frame heat exchanger and one's a tube shell heat exchanger. Tube shell heat exchangers have been around a long time. They're very similar to what a radiator would be. They're something that they're tubes welded in a big tube within the tube and one fluid medium flows through the tubes. The other cooling medium flows around those tubes. Plate frame heat exchanger, similar concept except they use plates. So on one side of the plate you have cooling medium flowing through it. The other side of the plate, you'll have the cooling from the engine on the other side of the plate to cool it. So with that in mind, the difference between the two heat exchangers are the plate frame heat exchanger is expandable. You can add more plates, increase its cooling capability. The tube shell heat exchanger, it's all welded together or braised together. So when you buy it, you're stuck with that size. You can't modify it in any way to give it increased capability. But you could put another one in series if you want. Although I suppose that would start introducing pressure losses. It could. And again, we're not going to cover that in this podcast. Maybe in future podcasts, if we talk about specific how you design a specific cooling system or a cooling system component, but you're absolutely correct, Chris. There's things that like pressure drops and losses because that is a difference between the two heat exchangers now that you bring it up. You know, the, the efficiency of a plate frame is quite good in regards to how it operates. And there are trade-offs, though it's more expensive than a tube-style heat exchanger typically. So, But we won't get into it, just, just touching base. So if we're looking at the additional systems, that was looking at the engine, we then have a smaller version of, of the tube and shell or plate and frame heat exchanger for, for example, air cooling for the test cell or fuel cooling, this sort of thing? Or would that be a different type of cooling circuit? It could be a different type of cooling circuit, but let's use the fuel part of it. Usually when you buy a fuel system that needs fuel conditioning to keep the temperature of the fuel at a certain temperature, it'll have a heat exchanger built into that system. So you need to provide fluid to that heat exchanger. But again, it's a separate heat exchanger. It's not using the pressure, temperature, and water to do all the control from the main cooling system because it's a different requirement for that heat exchanger So and that fuel cooling. So it'll need a separate heat exchanger. So we have to define each of those systems, work out the, um, the requirements, the heat input, and work out how big the cooling of each subsystem would need to be. Correct. And that takes us to our final topic, which is number four, which is basically the question that comes to be is now that I understand somewhat how a cooling system, the components of a cooling system is and the theory of how it works, how do I figure out, do I need that in elaborate of a system or do I need, or how do I determine if I do need that type of system, how do I determine the sizing how do I determine how big the pump has to be, how big the heat exchangers have to be, how big the cooling tower needs to be? So if we go back to the simpler systems using a very small hydraulic brake, I guess in some cases you can actually have a total loss system. You could run it from a water supply, which is draining, draining from the machine 
out of the system altogether, just run fresh water through it all the time. In fact, that's exactly how I started off when I built a built my first test cell for a company called Watson Engineering. We, when we started off with building two test cells. So we looked at what's the best way of cooling it. And we had a four inch main water main that was feeding the facility. And it was enough water to cool the dynos and the engines through heat exchangers for two test cells. And that worked for a period of time until we expanded farther. The trade-off is, one, if you do have enough city water, the problem is the cost starts to outweigh the solution that you're currently using. Yeah, given the waste that's going to come from that. You're not recirculating anything, you're just draining away. Yeah, and and the joke of it is, is for the first year of operation, we were the largest consumer of water in the city of Taylor. Obviously, the bills reflected that, and then when we moved on and said we wanted to expand – it became cost prohibitive, but it was a solution. And you can't forget too, depending upon what you're trying to cool. And if you're wasting the water, there are regulations that you got to make sure you don't contaminate the water if you are wasting it. There are guidelines you have to follow. But so realistically, it's only the very smallest engine test facilities or requirements that could run that type of system. Otherwise, it's going to be a recirculating system of some sort with a tank and a a cooling tower, etc. Exactly. And again, today we just covered a general common type of main cooling system. There are variations of that from one extreme to another. So the solution we talked about today was just a high level, not the only solution, but just something that is common in the test cell industry. Yes, because as we get into doing more specific testing, there can be very exact controls required for, the, for example, combustion air temperature or fuel temperature to get repeatable results from the testing. Very good point. And the the one thing I want to reiterate or just emphasize is that when you're designing a test cell and the purpose of a test cell, and I I may have said this in podcast when I can't remember when we were introducing this whole series, is that what we're trying to produce is a controlled environment for testing engines or whatever the product is you're testing. And you want to limit the variables or have control over the variables. Cooling is one of them. So if you're testing something where you need to have tight control over how cold or hot the engine is, you're going to want to put it in a test cell environment. You're going to want to have tight controls. That's the, in in the analogy of comparing it to an automobile, that's not as tight of control that you're going to get when you're in a test cell. And that's because you're trying to probably develop a new product and you need to make sure that everything is stable, accurate, and repeatable. That's a very good, very good way to, to wrap that up, Mike. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights, presented by Fru. If there are any engine testing topics you would like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at fruitdino.com.